Well, hey, you're here for week two of our series we're calling Doubt and Faith. And as a church, we want to be a safe place uh, to explore doubts and find faith. So I'm really glad you decided to join us here uh, today. Thank you so much. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. Now, uh, on Easter Sunday, we have this little kind of call and response thing that we do each Sunday where I say he is risen and then you say he is risen indeed. And uh, if you were here last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about the fact that every Sunday Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So I thought it'd be fitting if we did that again. Now, 9 o'clock again beat you really badly last week. Hopefully they will not beat you again really badly today. But we're going to do it like this, okay? I'm going to say he is still risen, and then you're going to respond, he is still risen indeed. Okay, you ready? Here we go. He is still risen. Uh, well, hey, again, glad you're here. Uh, just before we jump into the message, a really, a really quick thing about a transition on our staff. Uh, Trevor Talmadge has been here for a, for a number of years, many years as a matter of fact, investing himself in the life of our church, uh, working behind the scenes, doing all kinds of things that you're not even aware of, and his wife Nancy. And at the end of May, they're going to be transitioning off of our staff. But here's what I would like for you to do. When you see them, would you please tell them thank you, because you don't know the level at which they've invested in people. Much of what you see, much of what you experience, much of what you feel, especially when you're in this room, is a result of their efforts and their behind-the-scenes service. And so we want to honor them as they make a transition off. So I just want to let you know that. Can we just thank them for what they've done? Yeah. Well, we always read a a passage of Scripture. I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. We'll put it on the screen. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along. It's from the book of Job. Uh, That looks like the book of Job. It is not the book of Job. It's the book of Job in the Old Testament. I'll read it aloud as we uh, look at this together. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. And then you skip down to verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Well, there are a lot of reasons uh, that either you believe or that you don't believe. Um, it's not a, a, a simple thing. Uh, one of the reasons that you believe or don't believe is because you want to be like certain people, and you like certain people, and you want to share the values that they have. And so if you're a person who wants to believe, and yet you're around people that you like or want to be like, and they don't believe, it will make it very hard for you to believe because you'll feel like, well, I'm, I'm going against the group of people that I want to associate with. Uh, one, other, one of the other reasons that we believe is, is very personal. Personal pain happens to all of us. And what I've found as a pastor is that it leads people 
in divergent directions. So I have multiple friends who have gone through some sort of pain or tragedy in their life. And as a result of that pain or their tragedy, they said, I, I cannot understand how a good God could let that happen in my life. And they are no longer people who would say they're a person of faith. And then by the same token, I have friends on the other side who've gone through horrendous suffering. Terrible things have happened in their life. And they have a even more secure faith and confidence in God. And then there's the reason that uh, many of us believe is that uh, it just makes sense. That we, we want to make sense of why we believe. Or maybe if you don't believe, you say, well, Christianity doesn't make sense. And uh, what I would suggest to you is that Christianity actually makes sense of life and the big questions. And so what we're trying to do in this series is make sense of, of why Christians believe the things that they believe. And now you may say, as we've gone through this, you may say, well, you know, I, I don't doubt. I don't know why you're doing this series. I don't quite understand it. What I would suggest to you uh, is that, one, you have a gift of faith that many people don't have. And two, you need to understand that people around you do question and they need answers that help them make sense of it. And for you to just say believe when they struggle, uh, you need some resources to help them answer the questions that they're wrestling with. Because here's what I find. I find personally, I find Christianity to be uh, exceptionally reasonable. And here's why. Um, I think that Christianity has very satisfying answers to some of the biggest questions of life. If you think about the human condition. Now, why is it, you, would you say, that we're so broken? Why is it that we do things that we don't want to do and we leave undone the things that we wish we could do? Why is it that we hurt each other? Why is it that we, uh, we kill each other? Why, why do all those things happen? Why are, why are we so broken? Well, Christianity offers an answer, and you may not agree with it, but it, what it says is that we were all born with a, a broken part of us. The way the Bible describes that is sin. And it at least makes sense of why we are the way that we are. It helps us to get our arms around why we struggle so much. And actually, it says, you know what? That's the condition of all of us. And it kind of levels the ground and says we don't have to look at some people as though they have it together and other people as though they don't. It's just we're all in the same condition as human beings. And it actually levels the playing field. I find that very, very helpful. Uh, Christianity also does this. It offers a way forward uh, when in, in the face of all of our brokenness that keeps us from having to hate or even kill the people that don't agree with us. Because there are some ways of believing in God and religion that require you to hate the people who don't agree with you or even in some instances kill the people who don't agree with you. And Christianity offers a way forward that says you don't have to hate the people that are different from you and you don't have to kill them if they don't believe like you. In fact, calls us to something even higher and calls us to love. And one of the other reasons that I find uh, Christianity very, very reasonable is that it actually motivates people to make the world better. Now, for 2,000 years, Christians have been investing themselves in whatever community they, they find themselves in and trying to make it better for everyone, even for people who don't agree. Uh, the hospitals, the modern hospital that we have, that came from Christians who said, you know what, there are sick people and we should do our best to care for them in God's name. And the modern hospital, that's why the majority of hospitals, not all, the majority of hospitals, at least in our country, have some, it's St. John's or St. Mary's or it's whatever the case may be. It's, it's a hospital that is connected to a church. That's where it started. It was an, a, a, an attempt by Christians to alleviate suffering. And it, that's one of the things that Christianity does for people. And this is the way it's been from the beginning. Christians uh, from the beginning have cared for the least of these, the people that no one wanted. There was a practice in the, the first few centuries uh, that was known as exposure. 
And so if a mother and a father did not want a baby or couldn't afford to take care of the baby, what they would do after the mother gave birth is they would take that newborn infant and they would place, literally place that infant out in the street and forget that it ever was born. This was just a common, I mean, we think that's horrific, but in that day, it was just a common thing. You just did that. Well, the Christians said, this is a human being made in the image of God. And so they would go around and they would collect these little babies and they would raise them and they would care for them and they would love them. And they would, uh, orphanages are, were started by uh, Christian people. In fact, we got a letter in the mail this week uh, at uh, Christmas time. You, in the Christmas offering, you gave $15,000 to Kujip Nazarene Hospital in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is full of uh, tribes that are very primitive. And if there's tribal fighting or someone is injured, uh, say there's a machete fight, which happens on a routine basis in Papua New Guinea, and you get cut by that machete, you have no hope of making it to a doctor. And so what happened are the Christians said, we should alleviate as much suffering as we possibly can. And so they created a, a hospital system, and there's a rural network where a, a, a trained nurse, there goes that piece of paper, excuse me for a second, because I need to read this to you. But they, that you gave $15,000 to make this happen, and this letter just came from them this week uh, thanking you, and here's what it says. I'll read it to you. <coughs> On behalf of the Nazarene Health Ministries, Rural Health Services of Papua New Guinea, including all of the rural health staff and, fam and families, we send to you our thank you and acknowledge the tremendous gift your church has given to rural health services. This is a tremendous contribution given to support the work of rural health in Papua New Guinea. This year, the salary budget had a deficit of, uh, their, their monetary fund is called Kinas, of $50,000, which there is a massive amount of money. Uh, we praise God for the heart that you and your church have for the work here that has covered that gap. This is a timely gift that we'll use to rescue our two rural clinics from underfunding in tw the 2017 budget. The gift will assist us this year to capture the deficit in the staff's salary budget, and then he names the two clinics that will be affected. Of course, the salary budget is not just money, it represents people. We sent out nurses to be missionaries in remote areas where, th where there are no doctors, and you literally sent out missionaries to these two facilities this year. Now, you did that. Now, way to go. But I'm not just telling you that so that you can say, oh, I'll pat myself on the back. I'm telling you that because this is what Christians have always done for 2,000 years. As a result of uh, following Jesus, they've said, we're going to alleviate human suffering. In fact, the, the organization that we partner with, World Vision, is a Christian organization, one of the largest in the world that makes a tremendous difference. Anywhere there's human suffering, they show up, and they make a tremendous difference. Uh, at the beginning of, of uh, the, the scientific experiment that our world has gone through where we said we're going to explore the world, I don't know if you know this, but it was Christian people who said, we went, God made this entire world, so we're not afraid of exploring any area of it, and so they explored the body, and they explored plants, and they explored animals, and they explored the earth, and they explored mathematics and physics, and uh, so science and religion are not at odds. But Christianity is incredibly reasonable because it motivates people to make the world better in all kinds of ways. But there is an, an incredible problem and the, that we're going to talk about this morning. And the incredible problem, and it's honestly, I think, the biggest problem to making sense of could there be a good God is simply the problem of suffering. I, you don't need me to tell you. There's terrible suffering in the world. All you have to do is turn on the news today, and you'll see somewhere across the globe or across our country a story of terrible suffering. And if you're an honest person and you want to believe in a good God who has the power to make a difference in circumstances, you have to ask the honest question, how can there be a good, all-powerful God in the face of terrible suffering? Now, people who don't believe, they frame the question like this. They say, well, if you look at the terrible suffering that exists in our world, Either God is not good, 
or God is not all-powerful. And if you're an honest person, you have to say, now this is a real problem. How in the world do we make sense of this? The story of Job that we read uh, is the story of someone who suffers terribly and in a moment loses absolutely everything. Now, what's interesting to note about this is that the Bible is, in the Bible is this question uh, that we would phrase it this way. We'd say, why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible itself actually asks those questions. Now, contrary to what many people think, the Bible is not afraid to ask questions about faith. Some people are afraid. They either think that if you doubt, you're a bad person, or they think that if you doubt, you have uh, no faith. But here's what I would say to both of those things is that if something is true, if it really is true, it can hold up to any question. So you don't need to be afraid of your own questions or anyone else's questions if it's true. So last week, in fact, we learned that Jesus uh, is not against doubt. Jesus wants you to believe and understands if you need evidence, but wants you to be able to get on the other side of your doubt to faith. So here's this guy, Job, and he has seven, uh, seven sons, and he has three daughters, and he has great wealth. And in one day, everything in his life is wiped away. All of his wealth, all of his children, everything is wiped away. And if you've ever read the book of Job, it's this exploration of why would this happen to someone good like Job? It starts out at the beginning talking about how Job is this great righteous person. And why would, why would something that bad happen to some, someone that good? And so he does all those kinds of things that you and I would do if we went through that kind of thing. He mourns. At one point he says, I curse the day that I was born. Maybe you felt that way when you suffer. You say, why, why was I even born into this world? Uh, he questions God's actions. His wife doubts. His wife basically says, listen, how can there be a good God? He took our children and all of our wealth. Curse God and die. And he says, woman, we don't understand. Don't do that. He has some friends come along who try to help him understand it, and they had the false assumption that I've found many people have. They assumed that, be, that because he was suffering so many bad things, he must have done something bad to deserve that. And so they try to talk him into admitting the fact that he's done something wrong, and he says that's not the way it is. And this is, this is what I've found that many people feel when they suffer. Uh, routinely, people will go through something terrible in their life, and when we talk about the questions, they will say to me some version of, I'm trying to figure out what I did wrong in my life to deserve this. This is just the human question. Now you may go, okay, well that's the Bible. Uh, okay, that's a story in the Bible. What about real, real suffering? On December the 25th, uh, 2004, my wife was eight days overdue with our first son, Hudson. And uh, on December the 25th, I remember it really vividly because for lunch that day, we went to the Waffle House. Now, if you don't know what the Waffle House is, it's a chain in the South that is a gift from God uh, in a culinary way. <laughs> it's a greasy, yeah, someone knows. It's a greasy diner. Uh, you, will, you should probably go straight to the hospital after you eat there. But it's unbelievable. And if you want, I found that if you want to get an immediate seat, what you do is walk in the, the, the restaurant that it was packed on Christmas Day with a woman who's about to pop, and they will give you an immediate seat. So we sat down, we ate, we went home, and we're just really excited about this. We're thinking maybe the next day or the next day, anytime now, this baby's going to appear. Uh, we went through December the 26th, really didn't pay attention to anything, didn't really watch any television to see what was happening in the world. And then December the 27th, went in, started to have labor pains, and went in, and, uh, and, and it was a long process. Uh, 
didn't have the baby. The baby's heart rate was fluctuate, fluctuating up and down. We came out to find later that the cord was wrapped around Hudson's neck twice. And uh, they said, okay, we're going to take you in for a C-section because this baby's not coming naturally. And we then held the baby in our arms. It was so ecstatic. Uh, there were some complications while my wife was in the hospital. She had an infection in her uterus and uh, all kinds of things like that happened. And so we had to stay there a little bit longer. And I, as we were in the room and the baby would come in and out and the nurses would bring the baby in and out, I, I remember the TV was on and I kept seeing these images flash across the screen. I really hadn't paid any attention to because on December the 26th, uh, the 26th a, an earth, a massive earthquake out off the coast of India had struck and created a tsunami. What happens with a tsunami is an earthquake happens in the middle of the ocean, and then it displaces all of the water, so like rings moving out, and it will push these waves sometimes at five and 600 miles an hour across the ocean, and when it reaches the shallow shore, what happens is all that water bunches up and becomes a giant wave that rushes inland and destroys anything in its path. And there were reports in Indonesia and Bande Acha and in India, as far away as South Africa, as far away as Vancouver, British Columbia, of this tsunami coming in and making, doing damage. And at points there were waves that were 30 feet high and 50 feet high, and in some places people said 90 feet high that surged in. And if you remember that on December the 26th, 2004, those pictures created mass devastation. And so I watched that, and I watched the, the, I watched the, the death toll go up, 50,000, 75,000, 100,000, 150,000, 175,000, 200,000. Uh, they say today they don't even know how many people actually died. Uh, the estimations are anywhere from 228,000 people to uh, 280,000 people. So how do you, in the face of things like that, real suffering, how do you make sense of a God who's good and all-powerful. How do, you, how, can those, how do those two things jive? Now, I've got to tell you, that if you're an honest person, when you see a tragedy of that kind of magnitude, you're, you break. Because it's a universal thing to see the pain of our fellow man and, and say, oh, I cannot believe that's actually happening. And, and very frankly, I can understand why in the face of something like that, someone would say, I just can't believe in a good God. I, I can understand why they would do that. I, I, I turn in moments like that, I, I turn to Jesus because uh, I follow Jesus, and so I'm trying to learn from Jesus how to live. And, and I, I look at the life of Jesus, and probably no one taught us about compassion more than Jesus. It's probably, even if you're not a religious person, you would probably agree with that statement. No one taught compassion and love more than Jesus did. And there's a scene from Jesus' life where his good friend Lazarus, Lazarus dies, and he doesn't make it there in time to see him before he dies. And when he gets there, it's in John, it's the shortest verse uh, in the Bible. And do you know what the shortest verse, verse in the Bible says? It says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That God himself is moved by this kind of suffering. God himself is moved by your suffering. I, I cling to that in moments when I see that kind of stuff. I go, okay, God, God suffers with us in some way. I, I don't fully understand it, but he suffers with us. So I want to tell you why, uh, why I believe. Uh, I may not be able to convince you, but I want to tell you why I believe to the soles of my feet and to the bottom of my head that there is a good God who's powerful and can do something. I want to explain to you why. I've got two kind of philosophical reasons. I want to kind of do a, like a thought experiment with you on two things. I want you to hang with me on that. And then two personal uh, reasons that are just related to Jesus and what Jesus went through. Uh, and if you want to explore this more, I highly recommend a book to you that I'm, I'm using through this series called uh, The Reason for God. It's by a guy named Timothy Keller. It's a New York Times bestseller. 
where he outlines all of this in, in much more detail. If you want to explore that, I'd highly recommend that to you. Uh, but here's what I want to suggest to you, this little thought experiment. Um, two reasons that we wrestle with, how could there be a good God? And I want to suggest to you that you might say, when you see those, that pointless kind of suffering like that tsunami in Indonesia, uh, you might say, well, there's so much pointless evil and suffering, there can't be a good God. And I can understand how you would say that, but I, I want to suggest to you that that makes an assumption. And here's the assumption. The assumption is that if I cannot see a good reason for suffering, then that good reason must not exist. It's, it's the argument from my own personal experience. And if you're like me and you try to understand yourself, you begin to recognize pretty quickly that you don't have all perspective on everything in life and your perspective is limited. But it's, it's this uh, assumption that well, if it was if this terrible suffering, I would be able to see the reason because it would be ob- obvious right at the beginning. A guy named Alvin Plantinga, who's a Christian philosopher, he says this is kind of like a false, this is a false way of looking at this. He says it would be like going camping and you look inside your tent for a St. Bernard and you don't see a St. Bernard. It's a fair assumption for you to say, well, there's no St. Bernard in my tent, right? That's kind of how we make that argument about suffering. Well, I can't see a reason. It would be like a St. Bernard. It's not there, so it must not exist. But Alvin Plantinga says that's not exactly the case because if you were looking in your tent, and you didn't see any chiggers. Now, do you know what chiggers are? Uh, chiggers are, I think some people call them no When I was a kid, I used to run through the grass, and then these little bugs that you couldn't see, and I hate, uh, would bite me on the ankles, and then my ankles would all swell up and be itchy for days. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Alvin Plantinga says, if you were looking in your tent expecting to see a St. Bernard, but there were, no, there were these chiggers in there, and you would not see them, it wouldn't be reasonable for you to then say, well, they must not be there, because you can't see them. So when you're saying, okay, there... There has to be good reasons for the existence of evil, and I would see them. That's like you looking for a St. Bernard, not Chiggers. doesn't mean it's not there. Why would it be the case that you, couldn't, that you could see it? Why would it be the case that you couldn't see it? Now, this, is, uh, this, this applies personally, because when you think about the things that you've been through in your life, that you've suffered in your life, if you're a reflective person, you kind of come to the re- realization at one point that some of the bad things that have happened to you have actually served you in a great way at later points in your life. Uh, when I, if you've been around, you've heard me talk about my mom. I d- lost my mom to cancer when I was 16. And I don't have an explanation for that. She was a wonderful woman. doesn't make any sense to me. But as I consider uh, my life's calling, being a pastor, building leaders for God's kingdom, I, I can't really think of something that would have been better preparation for what I have to deal with on an almost daily basis and trying to understand the grief that someone goes through and the pain that they go through. I, I, I didn't want it to happen. I wish it wasn't part of my history, but it also prepared me for what I'm doing today. You, you have things like that in your life. Uh, there's a guy that I read all of his, his books that he writes. He's, he's gone now, but his name's Bob Benson. And Bob Benson used to travel around, and he would go with churches on a retreat, and he would do this exercise. And he said he would hand a, a blank piece of paper to people, and he would say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the blank piece of paper. I want you to draw a line across the middle. And he said, above that line, what I want you to do is I want you to write in all of the things in your life that you're grateful for, that you're proud of, that you're so glad happened in your life. And he'd give people time to do this, and they would write in you know, the things that they were happy for, and, and he would see people smile. And, and then he would say, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take, and I want you to write in below the line all the things in your life that you wish had never happened to you, the tragedies that you've suffered, the pains that you've endured. And he would, same thing, he would watch, some people would cry, and, their smiles would turn into a frown. And he said every time that he did it, 
afterwards, he said it was usually an older person, but they would come up to him and they say, you know, I thought a long time about this, and there was something I was going to put below the line. But because of what it did inside of me, I had to put it above the line. I had to do it. So there could be reasons for the suffering that we go through that we just don't have the perspective to see. I'm not saying that solves the problem, but I'm saying it's a possibility. That's the first thought experiment. The second thought experience, uh, experiment is this, is that I actually would suggest to you that uh, evil and suffering is, not, is an argument uh, for the existence of God. Now stay, stay with me. Uh, here, here it goes like this. Do you believe that people should not suffer? Yes, right? Is there a general collective agreement that people should not suffer? It's bad that people suffer. And, and you, do you believe, uh, do you agree that it's good that justice happens in the world and people are not treated unjustly? Do you, do you agree with that? Is that kind of like a general human sentiment, right? Few people who are not nodding their head yes, just look out for those people, right? <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. But here's, here's, here's the thought experiment, okay? Where does that sense that we should not suffer and that things should be just, where does that come from? Now, the dominant kind of idea in our world today about why things are the way they are is a philosophy called materialism. And what it, what it holds is that only what you can see, touch, taste, and feel, the physical universe, is it. That's, there's nothing else. There's nothing beyond this life. When you die, you die. You're buried in the ground. You're worm food. That's it. Uh, there's no faith. There's no God. Uh, this, is, this is the world, and so uh, a materialist who holds that position says that's, that's it, and all, we need to focus on science and not faith, and some people who are ardent materialists would say, you know, religious people are part of the problem, they're part of the reason that we suffer in the world, and we should get rid of religion, but one of the things that holds that together is that you have the idea that there's natural selection, that things that nature works itself out, and that view actually depends on the fact that nature is violent, and the, the weak die, and the strong survive. In fact, I have a picture here. It was made someone mad in the first service, so if it makes you mad, I'm really, really sorry, but of a seal eating a penguin. As Johnny Belcher told me after the first service, you're going to groan, that penguin's fate was sealed. Okay, it's a terrible, <laughs> right. If you know Johnny Belcher, blame him for that. Blame him for that, right? So if, if this is, let me, just, let me just, here's the thought experiment, okay? If this is it, if this is the world, if this is all that we have, then why, why would we look at something like happened in Bande Acha or anything that's bad that's happened to you and make a moral judgment about it and say it's bad? Where, where do you get the resources to say that it's bad? If this is it, why is, the, why, is the, why is that tsunami in Indonesia any worse than that seal eating that penguin? Why is that the case? So you have a problem if you, if you don't believe and you still feel like there should be justice in the world and that some things are evil and some things are wrong, that's only the case if there's a way that we're supposed to live. And if you're a materialist, you actually have no basis to make a moral judgment about something and say, that's good and that's bad. How do you know? So the point is that if you abandon God, it doesn't make the problem of, easy, of evil easier to handle. Okay, at least puts us on even ground. Now, that's, that's these two kind of thought, of ex, uh, thought experiment, uh, experiments from the life of Jesus. This is, I want to explain this to you and why I believe. Uh, you might say as you listen to this, okay, that, but this is personal. I've suffered in my life, and you can philosophize all you want 
that doesn't let God off the hook. God doesn't care about me because of the things that I've been through, the things that I've seen. And I, here's what I would suggest to you, is that Jesus, that Christianity actually gives you resources to deal with suffering that you don't have access to without. Let me explain what I mean. I, I see people uh, routinely, it's one of the things I don't like about my job as a pastor, uh, dealing with death. It's coming for you and it's coming for me. It's coming for all of us. And usually when someone goes through it, me or one of our other pastors are, are there. And it's so, it's so final. It's just the end. And I always see people weep. And I see two kinds of weeping, though. They're different. There are the people who weep because they've lost someone, and they look at that someone, and they basically have a materialist way of looking at it. And they say, this is, this is the person that meant the most to me. And this person helped define me. And now this person's not here. And I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And how can I go on? How can I continue? If this is it, I mean, and I, this person's no longer here, what am I going to do with my life? And they weep, but they weep like someone without any hope. I mean, I see that happen. On the other hand, I see people go through the same thing, and they love someone just as much. And they, they, that person meant the world to them. And they have hope beyond this. They think this is not it because of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. They say there's something beyond this. And so they weep, but they weep like people with hope. And it's a different kind of weeping. I don't know how else to describe it to you. It's just a different kind of weeping. What's the difference? The difference between the two is the person of Jesus Christ. And I would hope you would consider the person of Jesus Christ. That God in Jesus came into the world and put himself on the hook of human suffering. Because here's, here's, here's what helps me understand this. I look at Jesus and I look at the fact that he laid himself on the cross. And here's, here's what the cross means. The cross means that Jesus went through incredible suffering for you. See, Christians believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, so that God himself came into the world and put himself on a cross and suffered so he understands what suffering is like. He's not distant from it. He's not removed from it. He gets it. And so think about that for a minute. When Jesus is on the cross, he experienced emotional rejection. He experienced emotional pain. He was rejected by his friends. He experienced social pain. There were the people around him jeered at him, and they mocked him, and they made fun of him. Uh, he had the, the pain of injustice. Here he's this innocent person who only taught about the love of God, and he gets put on a cross for his sins. There's, there's the physical pain. The, the, they lashed him with a whip so many times that his bone would have been exposed. And they drove a spear in his side and put nails in his wrists and through his feet. Uh, on the cross, the, the Gospels record that as Jesus breathed his last, he quoted Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he feels, he feels forsaken by everything that matters. And what that means is that Christianity is, is that God became human, and so God has firsthand knowledge of pain and suffering and loneliness, and he did it to pay for our sins so that he could end evil without ending you and me. <coughs> I, I cannot answer for you the question, why does God let suffering continue? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the answer is what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love. It can't be that God doesn't feel. And if you take the teaching of Jesus into your heart, what happens is you begin to find the strength to face the brutal realities of life. And when, when, when death happens for you, you can grieve like someone with hope. Now, the resurrection is the other thing of Jesus that uh, helps us to deal with suffering. And it's the, the idea that our hope, uh, that our suffering isn't in vain. Uh, one of my favorite movies and books is the, the Lord of the Rings. The books are better than the movies. The movies are really great. One of the main characters is Samwise Gamgee. Sam, Sam is his name in the movie. 
And at one point, Gandalf, who's the, the main wizard, uh, he dies, or, or so Sam thinks. And then uh, Gandalf comes back, and he's received Gandalf back from the dead. And Sam has this moment of insight, and he says to Gandalf, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? I mean, this is, the, this is the hope the Christians have, that everything sad at some point will come untrue. And so it's not just someone dies and something ha- bad happens, that there's consolation, that in the next life it's going to be better. Resurrection is the teaching that, not consolation, but there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and that what happened for Jesus' body on Easter will happen to all of God's creation and to you. And so there's hope. Now, that's, that sounds all good, right? What about real life? What about, is there an example of someone using the resurrection to deal with immense pain, evil, and suffering? Two Sundays ago, Palm Sunday, in Cairo, Egypt, two bombers walked into two different Christian churches, two ISIS bombers walked into two Christian churches and blew themselves up. Uh, Forty-four people were killed. Uh, maybe you saw this on the news. I have a picture here. It's not a graphic picture, but just kind of some of the aftermath in one of the churches in the center of Cairo, St. Mark's Church. And uh, it was obviously a very sad thing. It was, always, it was an act of evil, an act of suffering. Those people didn't deserve that. Uh, here's a picture of the funeral. As the people mourned the 44 people who grieved, they uh, obviously were sorrowful, sorrowful and stricken. But here would be my question. How... Given your resources, how do you face up to this kind of evil in the world? Let me, let me tell you how the pastor of that church did, how he faced up to it. Uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, I'll put the, post this. I posted it the other day, but I'll, I'll post this later today. Uh, the nine-minute message that his name is Father George of St. Mark's Church in Cairo, Egypt, that he gave. But I, I think it's the best nine-minute sermon I've ever heard. It's in Arabic with uh, subtitles, so it's a little, you got to read it and listen to it at the same time, but you get the heart of it. And the message was titled, uh, What We Would Say to Those Who Kill Us. <laughs> and he said the most amazing things. The only if you have a hope that this is not it, you can ever say. He said things like this. He said, you won't get it, but please believe us. And he uses this illustration. He says, when someone is headed home to a particular city, he keeps looking at the time. When will I get home? Are we there yet? And he says, can you imagine if in an instant he finds himself on a rocket ship straight to his destination? And then he says this to the people who killed, walked in with bombs and blew themselves up. He says, you shortened the journey. Thank you for shortening the journey. What's he doing? He's someone who's grieving, but he's someone who's grieving with hope. He's like, there's more to this. This is not it. You, You thought you ended it, but you didn't. And then he goes on. Only someone who understands that there's more than this. Could, could say these kinds of things. And he said this, the second part of the message we want to send to you is that we love you. See, he wasn't bitter. He's still grieving, but he's not, he's not bitter. And he, then he, he kind of ends the message with this. He says, can you imagine? He says, we are being slaughtered, and the king of peace gives us peace to sleep. Now, listen, the Christian answer to suffering is the resurrection, and the resurrection says that this world matters, that it hurts at times, sometimes very badly, that death happens, but that, that is not the end. And what happened to Jesus' body on Easter Sunday morning is what will happen to you. Now, listen, I want to show you a picture here of Easter Sunday, last Sunday at St. Mark's Church. Man, only people with the hope of the resurrection would show back up in the place where they were just blown up the week before. So I, I, I again, I, I don't know that I'm going to prove anything to you if you're a person who doubts. I, I hope that you're on this journey, and I know some of you are, and you're 
kind of, okay, well, maybe this could make sense. And I would just offer two suggestions as we kind of wrap up here today. One is that I hope you'll keep considering this and come back next week. We'll talk about this some more, another thing that uh, kind of trips people up when they try to believe. Uh, but the second thing might be that you would be ready to embrace the teaching of Jesus and you would actually follow Jesus. And here's what you'll find out when you actually begin to put the words and message of Jesus into practice in your life. You'll find out that it's actually a better way to live to be a person who forgives. You'll find out that it's actually a better way to live to be a person who's generous. You'll find out that it's a better way to live to forgive your enemies and not hate them. You'll find out that following Jesus is actually a better way to go about life. And if you were ready to, to begin doing that, I would love on Baptism Sunday in three weeks for us to be able to baptize you. As someone who said, I, you know what, I don't have all the, I, maybe I'm not sure I even have this all figured out, but I'm, I'm willing to put my hand out and trust the resurrected Jesus and let him lead me into a different kind of life. And maybe you would want to do that today. Well, if you could, I'd, I'd like to pray for you. If you could stand. And let me pray for us, and then I'll, we'll, we'll give a blessing and then be, be done. God, thank you for uh, my friends who are here today who are, are trying to figure this out. And they're honestly giving this a try. And uh, they're not sure what they think. Uh, they're not sure about what has been said. And they're, they're trying. Uh, God, I pray for the person who's ready to begin putting their trust in you, that they would see that your forgiveness is always extended, that a new start is always available, and that you can lead and guide their life, and that they would reach out to you today and begin to do that. God, thank you that you let us be where we are, and you lead us along. You don't prod us, you don't push us, you guide us. And so uh, we want to listen to where you're taking us. So thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for putting up with our doubts. Thanks for leading us into a better place. I pray this in your name. All God's people said, amen. Hey, we leave you with a blessing as you go. People hold out their hands. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of the on-ramp, except for later today, 1230, upstairs in the student space, I'd love to meet you there. Receive this blessing. May you know the God who understands doubt and is not afraid of it and wants you to wrestle with it until you can believe. You're sitting out to love God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See ya.